Welcome to this Ashall Media podcast, supporting a growing community of financial advisors. Yeah, uh, pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Stephen Harold, Business Protection Specialist here at Vitality. Um, been with here a number of years now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you about shareholder protection. I suppose a question I might ask is, or might be asked of me, why did I choose shareholder protection? Um, and certainly the reason why it is, is because we've, you know, we've done research and other competitors have done research. And actually the death of a fellow business owner is actually highlighted by business owners as the biggest risk to their business. Um, so ultimately, I suppose if you, go, if you are going to be starting to open up business protection conversations with your clients or, or, or maybe go and seek out professional connections and speak to their clients, then it might be a, obviously a, a relevant conversation to start with um, if, if that's potentially something that they see as the biggest risk to their business. Um, we have our learning objectives. Hopefully you see these, but hopefully we'll, 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 we'll give you questions that you can potentially um, present to business owners to get them to understand the need and the risks that is running to their family families. We will, um, we will talk about how you set it up and how you calculate sums of short, et cetera, but also go a little bit further. Um, we'll, we'll talk about other areas that um, you can talk about with business owners that will probably go above and beyond what other advisors might be talking to them about, um, sort of raising the bar a little bit where you can add a lot more value um, in, in those sort of conversations. So we'll look at the need, we'll look at creating the solution, and at the end, we'll look at um, some of the extra support that's available to you um, at Vitality to help you make a success of business protection within within your uh, within your business. Um, so, why, why do we talk about shareholder protection? Why is it important? What are the problems? Um, well, this is nothing new, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've sort of you, you've seen this before. But we know that running a business, um, if you die, your shares are likely to be inherited by your family, and that can create issues because the family and the other shareholders always in the business probably have. Um, different goals, different objectives. The family might not want any involvement in the business. The shareholders, surviving shareholders, might not want um, to have a, a spouse coming in and having any any saying how a business is run. So, from the family's perspective, the risks that you're running there, loss of income. So, I suppose um, business owners will invariably take their income as a small amount of salary. The rest in dividends. Um, just inheriting the shares means you're a shareholder. You're not um, an employee of the business. You're not entitled to any salary, et cetera. So yes, you will continue to receive an element of dividend income provided the company is still profitable and declaring dividends. And actually, the actual declaration of dividends might be the control of the other people in the business. So you know they will ultimately decide what you might get. No involvement in running a business. You might have your own occupation, your own career elsewhere. You haven't got the time to devote to it. Um, and again, that can create a bit of animosity because the other shareholders, well, why have I got to pay them an equal, you know, shares um, or sort of um, dividends and profit or a share of the profit in this business when they've got no involvement in it whatsoever? And that can create a bit of friction and tension. Um, and it's not, this is not like buying shares in the stock market, I suppose. This is, you know, which is quite quick and easy. It can be a long drawn out process selling shares in, in, in a small local business. Any potential purchaser will be doing their due diligence. They'll be getting accountants to do financial interrogation of accounts. They'll be potentially um, negotiating the best possible price that they can get. And it can take a long time. Uh, from the other shareholders' perspective, obviously, it's, it's lack of money. Where will they get the money from to buy out the spouse? Could the spouse have a, you know, have inherited a controlling interest in the business, potentially, and, and now have a say on what happens? 
Um, and, and that's what it's all about, really. It's about that lack of control, that potential loss of control. This is your business. You set it up and somebody else could come in and, and effectively um, undermine what you, you want to happen. So, um, again, shareholder protection, really important. We've seen a massive growth um, in people setting up their own businesses in recent years. And as you can see, that chart uh, depicts that up to 2019. And again, as a, as a result of COVID, we've seen that entrepreneurial spirit, I suppose. And we've seen a, a really big increase in new businesses setting up. People are now preferring to run their own business rather than run the risk of being employee elsewhere. However, when surveyed, we, we understand that around only 8% of business owners have some form of shareholder protection in place. So it goes to show the risk that these business owners are running. And we are talking about your small SMEs. We're not talking about your big multinationals here. We're talking about the, your local high street businesses, the types of businesses that are potentially owned by your clients and will certainly be clients of maybe your um, professional connections, such as your accountants, etc. So, how can you potentially pitch the need um, for business protection and, and get your clients to understand why it's important? And we, we sort of break it down into three areas. So first of all, have you considered it? If not, why not? Um, how would you potentially buy the shares off of a fellow business owner? Where would you get the money from if you had to? And what are the rules within your business? What do the actual the rules of your business state should happen? Do, do you know? So let's sort of break each one of these three down in a bit more detail. So have they considered it? Um, so 63%, as, as I sort of said at the start, the far majority of business owners say that the death of a fellow business owner is the biggest risk to their business. So 63% said it's the biggest risk, but actually 41% of those said until it was actually raised with them, they'd never actually previously thought about it. So if they've never thought about it, they've never considered the impact, potential impact on the family from a, an ongoing perspective of loss of income, loss of control, loss, you know, and that, that type of thing, um, they've never had that conversation. Would you want? Would you prefer the cash, or do you want the shares? It's, it's a, an, an old sort of question that's banged around a long time, but it's still relevant now. Have a conversation with 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 your family as to what they would want to happen. So, if one of you died, what would you want to happen? What would good, you know, business owners? What would good look like to you? If you were one of the surviving shareholders, would you want to remain control in control of your business? Do you know what your families want? I suppose the bottom one, quite important, can you actually rely on the other business owners to do right by your family? Would you really leave that to chance? Um, we work in financial services. We all know that when money's involved, um, unfortunately, it can bring out the worst in people. Would you like to leave that to chance? Would you like to leave your, you know, your, your family, your loved ones at the mercy, potentially, of, 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 of someone who might change in character purely because now money's involved? So things we need to sort of consider. Um, how will they buy the shares? Where are they going to get the money from? So 23% of business owners that we surveyed um, about a year ago now said now their business will fail um, due to an inability to be able to buy the deceased shares. They just wouldn't have the money to be able to do it. 33% said that they would probably have to borrow the money. But I, I suppose it's easy to say, yeah, I'll just borrow it. But do we know what view the bank might take? Would they value the business the same as you do? We're certainly seeing a big increase in personal guarantees now being required for sort of commercial commercial lending. So I was in with um, a broker not all that long ago who was heavily involved on the commercial side and, and helping businesses um, businesses get that investment into their business. And they're saying probably now around 95% of all investments now from banks and other institutions are protected by personal guarantees. So yes, the bank might 
be able to lend you the money to buy shares in your own business, but there could be some real big caveats there. And also your personal wealth, your personal assets could potentially at risk if in the long run, you're unable to service that debt due to maybe other um, instances that happen around the business. And how would others, how, how did they respond and say they might purchase it? Well, they said they might crowdfund, they might borrow from the, borrow from the family, um, assuming that obviously there is that uh, liquid wealth within the family. And others have said that they could potentially draw down on personal assets. Now, in my mind, if you're a wealth advisor, that's assets you are potentially um, help, help, helping them invest. Um, they aren't going to be able to draw down on their sort of illiquid assets, such as homes and things like that. They're going to have to look at assets that, that are quite easy to be um, sort of encashed, I suppose. So what impact might that have on them personally and, and, and their goals that potentially you are helping them achieve? So they're going to have to draw down on those funds early. Does it mean they're going to have to retire later or maybe, um, you know, have to have to potentially risk um, having having um a lower standard of income, I suppose, in retirement. If they've signed those personal guarantees, are those other assets now potentially at risk as well? From your perspective, I suppose, that, you know, that's, that's a reduction in fees if the client has withdrawn those funds. And also, potentially, what, you know, difficult conversations if it says, well, what, why did we never discuss this potential risk? And we have, you know, businesses have just recently gone through very, very difficult trading period um, because of COVID, and it has highlighted the need um, to, to, to de-risk businesses and certainly shareholder protection, as I said, it, it's uh, obviously at the front of very many business owners' minds. So in 2020, 32% of SMEs required an injection of personal funds to get them through that COVID difficult trading period. 59% of all injection of funds were deemed as forced. The owners thought they had no choice. So what would be the potential impact in the future if a fellow business owner died? Would, would again, they feel forced and have to have to um, in, inject those funds. The business protection, I always do like to, to try and make it personal. So you're asking your business, and I suppose you could put this question to yourself, why are you in business? Well, you know, wh wh why are you running your own business? And you'll get the same sorts of responses. Well, it's autonomy. I don't want to work for anyone else. I can work the hours that I want to do. Um, income, I potentially, hopefully I can earn more um, running my own business than working for somebody else. Could be the retirement part, and we see that in this industry looking to build up our, uh, the intrinsic value of our clients. So hopefully we can sell that, that sort of client bank and the assets under management as a, as a going concern so I can go and retire somewhere warm. Um, getting, um, getting clients to understand what the business actually delivers them is, 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 is a really great hook to get them to, to understand the need. Because what you'll find is that it's really important. They will inject this cash into it. But ultimately, the business is probably funding the mortgage if they've got one. It's funding all the savings, investments, and pensions, pay, paying for the kids to go to the, to the school of their choice, all of that type of thing. It's the business is actually underpinning their lifestyle. Business protection will hopefully ensure, and certainly shareholder protection will ensure that they de-risk that to, to a certain extent. So we've looked at how they considered it. We've looked at how they funded it. Let's now look at what are the rules within your business. So when did you last review the, your articles of association? I suppose you could ask yourself that question if you're running your own business. When did I last look at the rules of association? Um, do you have a, a, an addendum to that? Maybe a shareholders, a, partner, a partnership agreement that might actually cover what should happen. But do you know, if you haven't looked at it, do you actually know what the rules are if one of you should die or suffer a serious illness? Do you know if within the rules, there's actually guidance on how the business might be valued in, in, in such an instance? 
you, you see quite a lot. If there if anything is in there, it might say that um, it might say that well, on death of a fellow business owner, that the, the the person who's inherited they have to offer the sale of the shares to the other shareholders first. But if the other shareholders have got nothing in place and they've got no means, such as you know liquid assets or an insurance policy payout, to purchase those shares. If they can't purchase them, then the, the, the person who's inheriting them is far within their rights to go and seek a third party, um, a third party purchaser. So, what are in your rules? When did you last look at them? And if we look at some of the information, some of the stats that come out of research, 43% of business owners have never reviewed their articles of association. They set them up. They need them because they want to be incorporated. They want to get up and running as quickly as possible. 10, 15 years later, they've never reviewed what's in them, and they don't potentially understand the impact of of, of that. What we are seeing more and more as well is that because companies are setting up people with that entrepreneurial spirit, people want to be up and running and running their own business quite quickly, they are now using, a lot of companies are just adopting those model articles that used to be referred to as table A. Um, you can go on company's house. That's one of the, I suppose, the disadvantages of running a limited company is that you know, you, you're, you know, the, 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 the um, Everything involved within your business, I suppose, is out there free in the public domain, how much profit you're earning, who, the, who, who are the owners, um, what your accounts, et cetera. Um, but also your, your, your documents around incorporation will also be there. Now, if you go onto company's house for a, for a client company and it says model articles adopted, you can, you can quite safely say to them, you do realize that there is no rule within your business that covers what should happen if one of you dies or one of you suffers a sort of permanent disabling illness. Um, in my mind, that's very much like dying intestate. With no rules, how long will it take? You probably might need third-party arbitration on potential prices to be paid. Where are you going to get the money from? It's going to take a long, long time. As I said at the start, you know, buying shares in the companies like this, it's, it is protracted already because of the due diligence process that um, potential purchasers are going to go through. Well, what might be the instance here if there's no rules? Because you can guarantee that the purchaser is going to want to pay less than the seller um, who's going to agree to it, how much extra costs legal and sort of um, accountancy-wise might be involved there. Um, and it's, you know, it would prove to be a, a sort of very difficult period. Now, there is a great case study that's open, you know, in the public domain that you've probably heard of. I've, I've been speaking it now for probably maybe two or three years. It's called AMT Coffee. You may, you may have heard of these. Now, AMT Coffee set up by um, three brothers. Well, I think it's actually set up originally by their father, so the McCallan Topping Brothers, Alistair, Alan and Angus, um, set up by them in 1993. Poor old Angus died of cancer at the age of 45. And, and unfortunately, there were no rules within their business that said what should happen. Um, they tried to get, I think they tried to get some money from the, from the, from the bank, but um, the bank didn't value the business the same. Angus's um, widow didn't really want any investment or no, didn't want any involvement in the business. He just wanted to sell the shares, but the other guys couldn't raise the funds. And so unfortunately, the relationship collapsed. The brothers were trying to grow and run a business at a time when the coffee industry was obviously booming. Um, and unfortunately, due to, due to the distraction and, and the, um, what happened as a result and result of court cases, I know that AMT actually had to sell some of their prime locations to Cafe Nero. Um, and this is all a consequence of not having anything in place, no process in place to ensure that well, the brothers would have the money quite quickly to pay off Lucy, Angus's wife, um, and they could have all gone their separate ways. I suppose the worrying thing is, is that this is still in the courts now. So around 2000, 2001, Alistair, I know, was, was in court because he hadn't complied with 
one of the rulings of the High Court, which was that they had to buy um, Lucy out um, and was potentially facing other proceedings. But this is still, still all ongoing now. Yeah, Angus died in 2006. So he's getting on for 16 years ago that he died, yet it's still still not sorted now. So that's what I mean. Taken a long time, third-party arbitration, additional costs, all because they really, never really thought about the potential impact and they never had a conversation with somebody like you who, who could highlight that risk and, and who could put a robust solution in place. So talking about robust solutions, let's look at our typical solutions that we can use for shareholder protection. Um, first off, I suppose we always need to think about, well, what is the, the value of the business? Now, there are various means that accountants will use to um, value businesses. And you might have heard of some of them. There's some that sound to me very Yorkshire called EBITDA. And I think there's even like a, a COVID variant of that now to, to sort of take into account that a business, you know, it, it, it might have suffered a bit through COVID, which was just a temporary blip. But generally, if we are um, financially underwriting, an underwriter will look at net profit. So it will look at the past net profit, average it out, and then we will multiply it by a factor, um, maybe five or up to 10 years. Now, all I would say is, well, if we're setting up a robust solution, we want to ensure that the um, valuation is accurate as possible. So that is where you would potentially get the accountants involved. Um, the company accountant, so again, it's, it's you get involved with another professional connection. Um, but effectively, it's all you would really need to ask them is, can we have a valuation of the business for insurance purposes? And hopefully, they will be able to provide you with that quite quickly. But I think from your own perspective, from a compliance perspective, you want to ensure that that third party has given you a, a, a good indication of what the correct value of that this business is. But we do know um, that obviously the value of business has changed. So we, we, will, we will talk about that in, in a few slides time. But the importance of professional connections in business protection, um, it really can't be uh, understated. So yes, speaking to your accountant, speaking to the company's accountant, um, they can help with valuations and, uh, and um, all that sort of style thing. But the way I see it, you, the accountant, so the, the solicitor, sorry, will be looking maybe at the legal side, those articles of association, the shareholders agreement. You all working together in a sort of a tripartite agreement to get the best solution in place for everybody's mutual clients. Um, all I can see is this could be, there could be no real loss, I suppose, as to the developing professional connections. It can lead to other referrals, other opportunities. And that is where one of the benefits, I suppose, of business protection is the ability to be able to go in and work with those other professional connections because you will, you will need to get them involved at some stage in most instances. But certainly the accountant from a valuation perspective, and when we look at the legal side of things, we maybe need to maybe need to stick, um, stick something under the nose of their solicitor just to make sure they are happy with it and it complies with the rules of the business that they may have already been in, involved in. So when we look at the solution, there are actually three, generally, three, three ways in which you can write it. Now today I'm gonna just concentrate on own life and trust. We do see it across the industry as probably the, the main route that is used. And I think the, the, the reason for that is that the benefits of using a trust. So speed of payment, certainty of payment, um, outside of the estate, so tax efficiency, all, all of those sorts of areas. Now, the other two, we, we, we've got a guide on shareholder protection, which I'm more than happy to, to share it with you, but the other route is life of another, so that's only really useful if there's two of you. So if the two of us are in business together, I'll take a policy out on your life and you will take one out on mine. Nice, quick and easy, no trust needed. However, it really only works if there's two of you. Um, company share, Chris, is the third one there. Again, it's, it's quite simple to set up, but there's 
potentially a lack of certainty and it's not right for every business. So it might not be right for maybe young businesses or businesses with, with, with debt within them. I think we can provide you both with all three solutions, but I'm going to concentrate on own life because we do see it across the industry as probably the, the most common solution. So with own life in trust, how is it set up? Well, it's, again, it, it is quite easy, really. So the plan owner will take a policy out on their own life. So if it's you and I are in business together, I will take a policy out on my life um, for the value of my shareholding. What I will do, however, is I will place it under a business trust for your benefit or the, the, other, the other shareholder's benefit within the business. So when we complete the trust, we do put the business name in there. Now, that doesn't mean that the business is going to benefit from the trust. Basically, the way the trust is worded, it says any shareholder of that named business is a potential beneficiary under this trust. So I'm going to take a policy on my life under trust for your benefit. And then what we are both going to do is we're going to sign a cross-option agreement, which basically says, if I die, you have the right to force my spouse to um, sell the shares to you, and she can force you to buy the shares off her. Nice, simple arrangement, um, quick and easy to put in place. So how would it work in practice? So if we go back to our little flow charts, we know that our shareholder is now insured and they die. The shares are still inherited by the family, but now we have an insurance policy paid out quickly and tax efficiently by the trust to the other shareholders. We have our cross-option agreement in the middle, which we've all signed, which basically says and helps to facilitate that exchange of cash. So if my wife wants to sell the shares, the other shareholders are legally bound to comply. Likewise, if the other shareholders want to buy the shares, my wife has to sell them to them. Um, so quite, quite, quite straightforward, really. When we look at the option agreements, obviously they are legally binding once they're completed, and, and every provider, we're no different, will have a range of off-the-shelf um, option agreements that can be used. They will be completed uh, or drafted by legal experts, so they're legally binding, uh, legally binding if they are completed. However, there is that caveat at the top, which you can see with, with, the, with the red sort of box around it, is really it's for consideration by the client's legal advisors. Um, because we all, we all want to ensure that it, you know, it matches what actually might actually be sat behind the scenes in the rules of the business, um, should they have a shareholders agreement or should they have bespoke articles. But again, it's that other opportunity to, to discuss um, and, and liaise with another professional connection. So who knows what, what opportunities that might bring. So within the option agreement, obviously you have each party has an option which is legally binding. And generally, we can either leave it at market value or we can specify a price. So what we need to remember with regard to businesses, and I, I think I said that earlier on, is that the value of businesses is, is not constant. It can go up and down. If we leave it at market value, you've got a risk there and that if we put a policy in place, say, for a million pounds, if in three years' time when death occurs, the value of the business has got all those shares has gone up to 1.5 million, then the policy will only pay a million, but you are now legally buying bound to pay 1.5. So you're going to have to find the excess. Now, within option agreements, you can actually build in sort of loan agreements whereby you can agree to pay that excess over, over a set period at a set interest rate. So there's a way in which they, could, they can also be developed to, to fit certain situations. Um, obviously, if the, if the market value is gone, then the shareholders can keep any excess paid by the insurance policy. It's, it's paid to them. It's, it's, it's their money. They don't have to pass it on to, 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 to the spouse who's inherited the shares. What you can also do to take out a bit of the, um, you know, the, the, um, the chance of, of, of the variation of the prices, you can actually specify a value. Right, so we agree that Steve's shares are worth a million pounds, and we will fix that price 
Um, generally, it's fixed for a set period, maybe 12 months, after which time it then reverts to market value. So what I see is one of the, the needs, certainly the, the really important needs of, of shareholder protection within business protection is an ongoing reviewable process. This is not a one and done. You're not going to put this in place, give them 25-year policies and then forget about it. It's an ongoing um, review. You need to go back in every year. Is it still the two or three of you it's only shareholders? How, the, how is the business doing? What's its value? Is it growing? Do we potentially need to look at this arrangement and increase your cover? Do we need to look at those option agreements if we specified a price and agree a new price? So it's an ongoing reviewable process, but in my mind, that's great because it gives you the opportunity then to discuss other areas within the business that may have been parked um, because they, let's get the shareholder protection set up. Go back in first review where we mentioned relevant lives last time. You, you said you might be interested. Can we talk about that now in a bit more detail? So it could lead to other opportunities around that business protection sort of arena. Um, one thing we do need to do also with own life and trust, and it only applies to own life and trust. So this wouldn't have applied to the um, life of another or company share purchase. Is we need to do something called equalisation of premiums. Now, equalisation of premiums is a HMRC requirement, um, which basically says the arrangement has to be commercial. So, if you and I are in business together, you remember I'm taking a policy out on my life and putting it under trust for your benefit. HMRC wouldn't see that as a commercial arrangement. If it's commercial, you should be paying for the policy that you're going to benefit from. So to oversimplify equalization, if we're in business together, just the two of us, you would pay my premium and I would pay yours. That would satisfy the equalization process for, um, for HMRC. Now, unfortunately, nobody's equal. Um, people might have different shareholdings. There might be more than two of us in the business, so that gets a bit more complicated. So Sam's on the phone, on the call as well. If it's three of us, I would have to pay a, a, my equalized premium. I suppose would be a proportion of your premium that you for the policy you've taken out, and also a proportion of Sam's premium. That would be my equalized premium. But you know, we're, we're no, nobody's equal. Um, you might be fit and healthy. You know, I, I smoke like a trooper, a bit overweight, and, and I'm a bit of a couch potato. So unfortunately, the downside of that is that you know you might have to pay a slightly higher premium. But things like size of the shareholding, smoker status, health. You know, a couple of years ago, even sex before we had gender, the, the gender initiative w would have made a difference. You know, your, your, your female um, shareholders would have had a lower premium, yet they would have had to pay the premium for, for, the, for the gentleman. So it, 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 it used to be cover all sorts of issues. But again, it's not something that you really need to do. You need to highlight it. And we've got a tool that can help you demonstrate to the client what, what you need to do. But ultimately, the accountant's going to take care of this um, at the end of every tax year. Now, the question I always get is, well, surely the business is business protection. The business is going to pay for it. Why do we need to, to worry about this? Well, again, it, it is a HMRC um, requirement. Um, but also, we've got to remember these are personal arrangements. So whilst we might get the business to pay for it, I'm taking the policy out on my life to your benefit. So it's an arrangement just between us as shareholders. Business has really not got any involvement in it at all. So from a tax perspective, if we get the business to pay for it, which ultimately we probably will do, um, the business can claim it as corporation tax relief as a trading expense. But on the flip side, for us as individuals, that equalized premium is classed as earned income. I sometimes hear it is referred to as a bit of a P11D benefit. So we would unfortunately have to pay a bit of tax and national insurance on that premium that's paid for us by the business. Um, from a benefit perspective, 
benefits of a trust, tax-free via the trust, quick um, and, and, and simple payments. So, I mean, that, that, that shareholder protection, in a nutshell, really, a, a simplified version of it is that each, each shareholder takes a policy out on their own life under trust for the benefit of every other shareholder, and we wrap around that the legal framework, which is the option agreement. One thing we do need to consider, though, in, in addition to that, is I don't suppose we want to just cover death, because actually the impact of illness can actually be exactly the same. So if I was to suffer a severe stroke, the impact to you would probably be the same as if I died, in fact, but apart from the fact that I'm still around. Um, yet I'm, you know, I, I might want to sell my shares. I, I want to exit the business, but you've only got a policy that pays out on my death. So we do need also to consider potentially um, covering um, sort of permanent disability, those sort of style illnesses. What you find with shareholder protection is that um, generally the business owner has to be quite ill um, to pay out uh, or, or to want to sell their shares. So they're not going to sell it for an early stage carcinoma in situ, that type of illness. It, it has to be quite a severe illness. Um, but the impact is going to be the same. It will bring in an extra cost, but it's worthwhile having those conversations with the client as do we want to just cover death or do we want to go, go review with a bit more risk by covering illness as well? Um, now, if we are setting up for illness, you would have two option agreements. So we'd have our cross option agreement covering death. So if I died, my wife would have the right to force you to buy, um, to buy the shares offer and vice versa. But on illness, you generally have a single option agreement. Um, you can, we could agree to have it double as, as a cross option, but generally it remains as a single. So effectively in our little arrangement, if I've had a heart attack, I'm the only person with an option. So I can decide and say to you, I want to exit the business now, please. You're going to buy my shares. You can't force me out. You don't have an option to turn around and say, Steve, we're buying, we're buying you out. Not unless at outset we had actually converted it to a cross option agreement. But we would have both have had to agree to that at outset. So again, it puts the ill person in a position of strength. So if you're covering um, life and or earlier illness, you would have two option agreements wrapping around the whole arrangement. Cross option for death and a single option for illness. Um, so that's, that's our shareholder protection. But what I wanted to go cover through now in the last few minutes, I suppose, is other options that you or other areas you might come across that actually I think might set you apart from other advisors in this field. You're going to take the, your knowledge and apply it a lot further. Also, I think it might be able to help you review other shareholder arrangements that might have been put in place by other advisors and give you, um, you know, give you thoughts in which how potentially that might be able to be improved. So the first one we're going to look at is um, unwanted, creating unwanted tax liabilities. Then we're going to look at um, non-working shareholders, and we'll cover what I mean by that in a second. So this is our solution. You know, you've seen this little flowchart already. We know the shares are going to go to the family. The insurance is going to be paid by a trust to the other shareholders, and the option agreement will facilitate by exchange of shares and cash. But from the family's perspective, are they potentially creating now an IHT liability? Have they sold um, shares that could potentially be quite tax efficient for now a big wad of cash? Because you know, you're looking at the size of some of these shareholder protections that we, that we see at Vitality, you're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds, millions of pounds even, um, that are potentially now going to be paid out as cash. So the, the family are going to exchange that, those shares, for, for cash. Has that now created an IHT liability? So generally, the type of businesses you're going to be dealing with, they're more than likely going to be able to qualify for business property relief. So you're familiar with that sort of 
extra IHT relief for business owners, the ability to to pass your business down through the generations without having to to sell off a, a portion of it to, to to meet a tax liability. So are we exchanging that tax efficient asset, i.e. those shares, for for cash? Now, a potential solution that we could use to maybe avoid this would be to consider what's called a spousal bypass trust. Now, you're more than likely well familiar with this from a pension perspective. Um, I'm not sure whether they're used quite as much as they used to be, sort of post-simplification, and that now how pensions are sort of a bit more inheritable. But you can have these for business purposes as well, and it works really well on a shareholder protection perspective. So how, how do we set it up with the spousal bypass trust? Well, we set up the actual um, solution, exactly the same as we, we, we had done in, in, in the first example. So I'm going to take a policy out of my life. I'm going to put it under the business trust to your benefit. And we are going to sign um, the option agreement. So we do exactly the same. Except in this instance, what I'm going to do is via my will, I'm going to give the shares to a spousal bypass trust. So you can set it up, staple £10 to it. And in my will, say, you know, obviously gift gift the shares in our business to the spousal bypass trust. What that effectively means at point of claim is that when I die, the shares go into the spousal bypass trust. The insurance is still paid out tax efficiently and quickly by the business trust to the other shareholders. And yet the option agreement now takes place between the trustees of the spousal bypass trust and the shareholders. We're going to keep that money now outside of my spouse's estate. Obviously, within the spousal bypass trust, I mean, we now have to consider that the trustees will probably now have to register this trust. Um, it's obviously something new that's just that's recently come on board. But I, don't, I, I see that as a minor disadvantage to the, the overall tax efficiency that it, hopefully it will be able to deliver. Um, a trust can lend the spouse money. And we know that obviously loans can, are a great way of helping keeping the, the spouse's estate down. If, if, they, if they spend that money um, and don't retain it within their estate, then that is potentially repayable to the estate on their death as well. So it's a great way of, of, of helping to keep their estate down also. Um, we do need to consider periodic and exit charges. We do need to consider that registration process. But I suppose from your perspective, that money is sat within the trust. Um, the trustees are going to need investment advice as to where that money can be placed and invested for the long run. Um, so again, you see a lot of shareholder protection um, solutions put in place, and they do not cons they only consider the the shareholders and the impact of that. They don't consider the potential impact moving forward of any potential IHT liability that we may have inadvertently created. You can add value by also bringing that into the conversation. Another sort of business structure that you will quite often see is that a spouse or, or a business owner will involve their spouse in the business, give them a small shareholding, whether or not they work in the business at all, just to help um, help extract the most income that they could potentially can from the business in a tax efficient manner. They are, you know, the, the revenue sort of turned a blind eye to it, but we do see it quite a lot um, have, having that sort of non-working shareholder, the spouse, just, just to help them get some extra money out of it. Um, now, that can create issues when we create our shareholder protection solution, um, but there are ways around it. Because the issue I suppose you have is that that non-working shareholder more than likely would want to exit the business. This 5% shareholder here, certainly the other two aren't going to want him to come into the business and become a 50% shareholder. And likewise, the 5% shareholder has probably got other business interests and what have you, uh, their own career elsewhere. They probably don't want to become involved, the same as if they didn't have any any shareholding at all. So there is a solution around that, which is quite simple, and it's called a combined interest option agreement. 
Sometimes it's referred to as an option agreement, including spousal shares. So what happens is it, it creates the option whereby the surviving shareholders are able to buy out the combined interest. So the interest of the main shareholder and the interest and the shares of their spouse as well. So within the option agreement, you have what's called a primary or working shareholder. So that's the main person, obviously. And then a secondary or sometimes referred to as non-working. I think they can actually be working within the business. It's just to, to differentiate them that they are classed as non-working. And the way this option agreement works is that if a primary shareholder dies, then it creates an option for the surviving shareholders to buy out the combined ownership, i.e. 50% in this instance. However, if a secondary or non-working shareholder dies, no option exists. The 5% would just be inherited by their, that, that primary involved, and they will carry on in business together. So to break that down into that flowchart process to show you how it works, death of a primary, um, primary dies, the shares are inherited by their spouse, so they now suddenly become a 50% shareholder. An insurance policy to the value of 50% of the business is paid tax-free via the trust of the other shareholders. And we have the option agreement, which basically says we're going to buy you out with that 50%, meaning they're now not shareholders, and the surviving two here now own 50% of the value of the business each. So again, it's, it's taking into account that business structure that you will see on a, on a regular basis. From the non-working perspective, how does it work? Well, the non-working dies, the shares get passed to the uh, primary shareholder, no option exists, no policy in place because we know that the, the primary is just going to inherit that 5% and carry on working in the business now as a 50% as a shareholder. So again, another area where you can potentially differentiate yourself from the rest of the pack by being able to offer solutions that you commonly do see um, within business practices. So just in summary, before I sort of close and go to maybe the, ne the next steps, ask your clients, when did they last review their articles of association? Have they had that conversation with their um, spouses around, do you want the cash, do you want shares? Do you really want to work with a fellow business owner's spouse? Could you afford to buy them out? Have you got the liquidity? Um, do you really want to potentially utilize your, your personal assets that you've, you know, you've got probably got a bucket list of things that you want to do with those maybe in retirement? Do you really want to maybe run those at risk or maybe have to, to take on additional borrowing and then sign personal guarantees, which again might put, put those personal assets at risk? Um, hopefully that's given you a, a good insight into shareholder protection, why it's needed, questions you can ask, um, solutions that are out there that can really differentiate you for, from the rest of the pack. Um, just a little bit on vitality, I suppose, as to how we can help you in this area. So it's not a vitality push as such product-wise, but certainly you're busy, your clients are busy, so it's all about ease of business, I suppose. So, you know, business owners might have health issues. We've got Spectra, which is like very James Bondy, but it's a, an online pre-underwriting um, pre sort of tool where if you've got a client with a few health issues, you can go in, you can put the information in there whilst you're in front of the client and it will give you indicative terms to save you having to maybe spend, ring up, um, ring up a provider, try and get through to an underwriter and then discuss it with them. We've got what is called our big T underwriting. So effectively, this is our telephone underwriting. So you can complete the first part of the application, pass all the medical underwriting questions off to one of our vitality trained nurses. Um, they can then contact the shareholders um, uh, it, it, whenever it's convenient to them to complete the medical side. So that, again, that can, I know advisors like that because it sort of removes a, a bit of that non-disclosure risk away from them. 
And also, you know, if, if, if you're dealing with applications from, from the opposite sex, sometimes some of the questions can be can, can maybe be a little bit awkward. And again, your clients are busy people. You, they want to be um, disrupted as minimum as possible. So we've got a fleet of nurses out on the road who if, if screenings are around, they can go to the place of work, the office, the factory, and they can do any potential screenings there and then to, to save your, your business owners time and energy. And finally, we talked about shareholder protection. It's under trust. We have got a signature-free trust route. So when you apply for the policy, um, it has to be under trust or mindset. You can do that without the need. You can do it at point of application without the need to go and see clients, get signatures, get witnesses, and all that, all that type of issue. So it's just all about making that life a little bit easier for you. To take the knowledge on a little bit further, we've got the Vitality Academy, which is CII accredited, um, and also gives you the ability to turn, earn some extra um, CPD. So if you want to listen to my Bristolian accent again, you can go on to various modules. You don't have to do all the module all at one go. You can break it down. But you can look in, you can go and have another look at shareholder protection. You can look at key person, relevant life. Um, lots of, again, help and technical support there to, to give you that technical knowledge to, to help you um, go out and make a success of this. And, you know, we've got the academy, we've got tools, we've got literature, sales aid, lots of support there, as well as the the um, people like myself and your consultants who are out on the ground that can help you um, make make this a, a sort of success and, and support you through the process. So finally, just a call to action. You've now had sort of one and a half, I suppose, business protection presentations because I've either um, had a few technical issues, but certainly speak to your professional connections about maybe um, setting up some kind of reciprocal arrangement with them. Look at your clients, look at the client bank, speak to those who have occupation as director. Um, in, you know, put some, some time aside to, 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 to really build up your knowledge on business protection because it, it can be an except, exceptionally lucrative market. Um, I generally talk from technical terms, it's, it's chunkier premiums because older clients, the higher sums are short, and it's also stickier business. It stays on the books. Business is paying the premium. The, the persistency rate is, is so much higher. Then you know, then have some idea in your in your mind, I suppose, there about what what is success like for you. What do you want to get out of? You've been on, you've given, you know, you've devoted a lot of time this week, I suppose, to this session and the other sections. What do you want to get out of it? What what's your plan? What what will success look like? <laughs>